You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. Colossians chapter 3, starting verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Grass withers, The flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Last week, we worked through um, the effect of following Jesus upon the Christian household, specifically the issue of wives and husbands and children's. And one of the realities that I tried to keep in mind through all of that sermon was that there were always going to be certain situations that we'd be able to think up where we could say that those texts they would not produce the the human flourishing that they were designed to produce, but could actually lead to abuse. And our text this morning is no different. You're going to be able to think up situations where this could be used to abuse and to diminish um, the the value of human life, and that would be a, a misuse of the passage. But our ESV has translated, that's, that's, we, do, we want to keep that in mind as we work through this text. Because our translation here this morning, the, the ESV in this latest uh, work has translated the first word there, bond servants. Um, if you have an older ESV, which I do back in my office that I read, it translates that slaves. And maybe many of your translations would say that, would say slaves instead of bond servants. Uh, the translators there are trying to um, th- be culturally um, understanding of the term slave in our society today carries a lot of negative baggage, and rightly so. And so they, they've translated that bond servants to kind of take some of the edge off of what is being said there. But the Greek word there is doulos, um, if, if you care to know that. And that is translated many ways, many times, as the word Slave. It's that's what it means. It's someone who no longer belongs to themselves, but whose life belongs to another. And the reason why I'm confident that's the way Paul thinks of it is that he often re- uses this term to refer to those who serve Jesus. Paul, at the opening of the book of, I didn't look this up. I think it's Philippians. Yeah. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, he says, Paul and Timothy, sin doulos, S-Y-N doulos, co-slaves, co-laborers, co-servants of Christ Jesus. And what he means by that, we know from Paul, he says in many places, my life is not my own, 
I belong to Christ. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who saved me. So that is the understanding of this word. Those who do not belong to themselves but belong to another. Because we have this idea in Christianity that we do not belong to ourselves even, but we belong to him and we belong to him gladly. So then what are we to do with this section? This is one of the reasons why I love expository preaching, working through, because you would never pick this passage to preach on. It forces you to say, okay, if, if God's word is divinely inspired, all of it is profitable and, and beneficial and good for reproof and for doctrine and correction and error and training in righteousness, there's something in this passage that's worth looking at. And so here we are having to work through it. And what should we do with this section? One option is to just throw it away. One option is to say we have outlawed slavery uh, in, the, in the, the great state, great nation of the United States of America. So there's no application here whatsoever. We don't live under a culture that has this sort of mentality. So let's just throw it away. Obviously, I've already given away. I don't believe that. I think that there is something for us to learn from this text. That's why we're talking about it. The other option is the claim that the Bible is pro-slavery. And that's been done in the past. This text has been used. This text and others like it have been used to affirm the horrible legacy of chattel slavery in the United States of America. It was a text that was used to say that slavery is condoned by the scriptures. And so therefore, the ownership of another individual based entirely upon their race it was okay. That has been used in our history. It's a dark, dark stain upon American history and a dark stain upon Christianity that this text would be used in such a way. Slavery based upon race and upon capture, not through war, but by abduction or man-stealing, was not condoned by God. It's actually punishable, according to the Old Testament, and if you look at Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, if you want to look these up later, Exodus 21, verse 16, Deuteronomy 24, verse 7, talk about the penalties of a man-stealer, okay? So this passage is not an affirmation of the enslavement of any race of individuals like we have experienced in the dark past of our country. Lest it goes without saying, racism is evil. It's sin. It is wrong. And this text is not an affirmation of that history. So it's important to say that. It's been used that way historically. We don't, that's not what this text is trying to put forward. The third way is to see that the Bible recognizes the complexity of the world's realities. There were instances where slavery in the ancient world was a viable part of the economy. Okay, So it's a different world. It's 2,000 years ago that we're talking about. There were instances where this was a viable part of the economy. There were individuals and whole families whose lives depended upon their employment as slaves. Was this good or was this bad? Was this good or was this bad? Well, it's a complex question. And I don't mean that to dodge the issue, but it is a complex issue that Paul was dealing with and that we have to deal with when we look back and try to read this text under its original audience. It's very easy to say from our perspective, that's obviously bad. 
but there is a truth that has to be confronted. And it is that if all slaves in this economy were immediately given liberty in that society, it would have brought about economic ruin. Therefore, Paul doesn't whole cloth condemn slavery, but he does plant the seeds for the liberation of every individual because of their individual um, imago Dei made in the image and likeness of God. So he doesn't whole cloth condemn and he plants the seeds, but he understands that in the culture that they're in, it is a necessary part of the human economy and gives instructions. And I would say the instructions are revolutionary instructions on how the slave and master relationship should be handled. So an example that I read in one of my commentaries, I, it goes like the other day, um, I got home uh, from work and Jan had been watching a, a horse cartoon and I think it's based Texas, I assume. Horses, it's ranches. And they had evidently an episode that had bad guys because there's always lots of drama in little kids' cartoons. And the bad guys were drilling for oil in, in Texas and they were, just, they were just the de facto bad guys and I assume they're just rough characters and chasing the horses off the ranch so they can drill for oil and, and ruin everything. And so I got home, you don't, you don't expect questions like this from your kids when you get home from work. I got home and she says, Dad, is oil drilling bad or good? Oh boy, well, <laughs> how do you answer that? Is drilling for oil bad or is it good? Well, it's, it's more complex than you might think, right? Because on the one hand, the diminishment of our fossil fuels probably isn't a real great long-term strategy. I mean, if you get, if you just, I know it's a vast amount of oil, but I mean, anything, if it's a limited resource, just the unhinged, unhinged uh, taking of that natural resource, probably not a great long-term strategy because eventually that will run out. I mean, it might take a long time, but it isn't a real great long-term strategy. And so the idea that because that's, you know, the diminishment of our natural resources is limited and that's not a good idea to just say that's bad, um, you know, that, that might be granted on that basis that there's better, we should think of better ways to get our energy. It'd be better if we had alternative sources of energy that were more easily replenished or renewable. If we could not drain our planet of natural resources, that would be good. But the other side of that equation is, do you enjoy a heated building this morning? I, I'm kind of glad we're not trying to like, you know, sit around a fire and heat this place together, uh, although we'd get a much smaller room you know, instead of trying to be in this large place. You know, do you enjoy plastics? Do you enjoy the fact that you rode in a car on the way here as opposed to walked or rode a horse or something along those lines? We are very dependent at this stage in our economy on our fossil fuels. And that just wholesale cut them off would mean a major change in our culture. It caused major problems. So is oil drilling good or bad? Well, this is what I said to her. It's complex. <laughs> she didn't really want that answer. She wanted a yes or no, black or white. But I had to say, that's complicated. If you're uncomfortable with answering things that way, you're going to have a very hard time. If you think it's cowardly, like it's avoiding the question, um, I don't know how you deal with much of life. Because it's, it's, it's a complicated issue. There isn't necessarily some black and white um, just easy answer. There's nuance. There's trying to figure this thing out. If you have to ask, why didn't Paul just, just flat out condemn slavery? Well, it's complicated. He plants the seeds for their liberation. And in fact, 
You can read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul tells those who are in slavery, if they are given the chance to avail themselves of the opportunity to gain their freedom, they should do it. They should do it. But it's complicated. So this is a very important category that honestly we seem to have lost today, that there's complexity to these issues. Um, read a news article um, out of San Francisco that 42 schools in this, in this region are being forced to change their names. Uh, they had offensive names upon their school, and they have to get rid of them. And I'm not sure you've heard of these names, but some of the offensive names were George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Those were the offensive names. Now, my son has gotten uh, into reading about the presidents. He's got a presidential book, and he'll don't ask him to quiz you on it because you'll end up embarrassed, or at least I do quite frequently, <laughs> on facts on the presidents. But one of the questions he'll often ask is, was that a good president or a bad president? Now, there's a fun question, isn't it? What's the answer to that? It's complicated. They did some good things. They did some bad things. It's a complicated issue. History is difficult. We have to deal with facts honestly. There were things that were bad. There were things that were good and necessary and scores of things in between. So what do we see here in Paul's writing on this issue? It's a complex issue, but what are the main takeaways that Paul is planting in this church at Colossae? And imagine the scene. The church is gathered to read this letter from Paul. And who is there? People from all different walks of life. You probably have slave owners at the front, those who were the masters. He's talking to them. And slaves, those who were owned possibly by the people in the same congregation, attending the same service together. And what is Paul's language going to be to them? They're gathered there as one body of Christ. And Paul has written earlier in um, chapter 3, verse 11. He says that here in the church, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is in all. So you can hear the seeds being planted of the dignity and worth, especially inside of the church, as brothers and sisters one to another, that Christ is in all. The doctrine of the Imago Dei is that humanity is created in the image and likeness of God and of deserving of equal dignity and value. Absolutely across the board. Yet there is a distinction in role. And what Paul says is incredibly powerful and it has application for today. Imagine being in that same room with one to another and how is Paul going to handle them? I want us to see again, like last week, Jesus doesn't stay in his corner. That was one of the points from, from last week. He doesn't stay in his little corner of the house, but he gets right into your business. He doesn't mind his own business. Down to these very incredibly uh, intimate, personal details of even work relationships, your involvement in your society. Jesus is involved and he has opinions and he wants to get involved in those areas. I hope you can see that he gives complementary roles to both segments of the population. Paul doesn't just tell slaves to get to work. In fact, he tells masters that they ought to do what is right concerning their bond servants, those who work for them, their slaves. 
It's incredibly, actually, it's incredibly severe language for masters, for those who are the owners of these individuals. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul kind of ups the ante. He says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Why? Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That the day is coming when you will give an account for the way that you've behaved with those who you are in charge of. And because you have a master in heaven, if you want him to be merciful and just and kind towards you, then you better think about how you relate to those who you are in charge of. Paul says this in very in severe language for those who are in charge. The implication that you want to be given mercy and grace, you better consider giving it as well. So it's a hard word. It's a big word for those and a, and a, and a um, dangerous, a severe word for those on the position of being in charge of or having the leadership or the ownership or the bosses, you could say, in this societal relationship to ha treat them fairly. But the, the, the bond servants here are called to obey, not just with an outward conformity, but with sincerity of heart. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, just a way to get along, or as people pleasers, but honestly work with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, doing everything, whatever you do, working heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This has incredible application for our understanding of what vocation is meant to be. The Christian doctrine of vocation has almost disappeared from modern language. The idea that the Christianity matters in your vocation. We, we've, we've segmented our society. Religion is what you do on Sunday and everyone has their private religion and then you might have your job and the two are to stay separated. But that's not been the historical Christian position, that there is a reality of vocation and the Christian idea of what vocation is to be. How does a Christian live in the modern workforce, in our societal structure of employment and relationship? How does a Christian live in the modern workforce? Should the Christian even be in the modern workforce? Should you even have a secular job? Or maybe those who are really holy and special, they only have religious jobs. And then all the rest of the, the lower rung people, they're out there doing work in the real world, you know, the, the ugly secular world, while everyone else does religious work. Is there the separation? Paul doesn't allow for that separation. These individuals are engaged in their society, in their quote-unquote secular culture, as Christians, there is a doctrine of Christian vocation. So if we are to work in the modern world, if we are to be engaged in the workforce, if we are to engage in the world, what are we to live like? And the language Paul uses is similar to, if you look up in verse 17, Tony covered it a few weeks ago, Paul giving this admonition to the church, whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The application is this. No matter what your role in our society is, there is a way for you to live it and to put on display the value and worth of Jesus. No matter your role, no matter how lowly you may be seen to be, no matter how menial your task is, no matter if you are a student 
or if you are a parent, no matter if you are in, you know, the poor people who had to like work outside on days like yesterday, no matter if you're that low on the totem pole of employment, that you're out walking the streets in a blizzard, even those people uh, have a, an obligation, no matter what your role is in society, there is a way for you to live that job, to live that existence, and to put on display the value and the worth of Jesus. No matter if you run your own business, say you have many, many of your own employees, you're, or maybe you're managing a retired life, maybe you're, you're not working anymore, so you've got free time. Even your retired life, there is a way, no matter what your role is in society, there is a way for you to live that life and to put on display the supreme value of Jesus. The question should always, we should always be asking is how can I best glorify Jesus here? Or how can I live in a way that shows the supreme value of Jesus? The reality is this. God has providentially put you in the place you are in. I know we've all worked and applied and had our proclivities and made choices. But providentially, remember the book of Ruth God has put you in the place that you are in. So your biggest question is not how to get to your next job or even how to make it to retirement or even just how to make it through the day. The question is how do I show Jesus as the greatest treasure in the world right where I am at? Right where I am at. How do I Work for the Lord in the situation that I am in. Sure, avail yourself of a different situation, but today, this is the situation you are in. How do you work for the Lord, not for men, in the moment that you are at? How do you, in whatever you do, word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus? This is what it means to be the church scattered in our world today. You have a role in spreading the glory of God to every corner of this globe. Sometimes, though, when I say that, I think it comes across as too abstract. Yeah, we should spread the gospel to the ends of the world, forgetting that that means your neck of the world. When we say around the globe, that means your block, your friend group, your coworkers, your family. Are you showing Jesus as the greatest treasure? Are you showing Jesus as Lord over all? Are you seeking to glorify everything right in your small family unit? Not the next family unit, not the next whatever relationships I can get into. Right where I'm at right now, I have a responsibility to live this life that I have providentially been given in such a way that makes Jesus look incredible. What's incredible in this passage are the past few weeks we see Across the spectrum of, of individuals, God is glad to draw them to himself, to save them, to fill them with the Holy Spirit without distinguishing all Christ is in all and, and with all, and to send them on mission for his purposes. A statement that um, a certain writer uh, that I've been reading is, is fond of saying, and I really like it, I'm going to steal it, Dwight Smith has written this in some of his books, but it's this idea, here's this proposition. Whatever God is doing in the world today, he is doing through all of his people. Whatever God is doing in the world today, he is doing through all of his people. You. We get the idea, okay, I'm the guy up front, I'm the guy who's going on and on for 25, 30 minutes, 
God's, you know, but what, what God's doing in the world, he is doing through all of his people. This means if you are Christ's, he has placed you where you are to be a testimony to his mercy and grace to those around you. Even if it comes at great expense to you, even if it means seemingly wasting your life in a worldly sense to show your neighbors the love of Christ, God has granted you and gifted you with unique opportunities that we ought not to waste, and doing so will not be a waste. That's in this text, verse 24, if we talk about doing heartily, working for the Lord, not for men, verse 24 says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as the reward. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Ultimately, the comfort is that Christ will not leave those who are his without an inheritance. He will deliver their reward to them. God has not abandoned those who are his, but they will see their reward. This text has real-life application. And I know and it's a weird text, I think, to get it from. You never jump into it like, this, let this text bless me today. But it is fascinating, the real-life application that's found here, because it is telling us that no matter the situation that we find ourselves in, in this life, we should work to show the supreme value of Jesus. And that could be as simply as asking your coworkers, is there anything that you can pray for them about? Maybe even praying with them when they tell you. Telling your neighbors about Jesus. Telling them about the satisfaction and the peace that you have found in Christ. Why? Because whatever God is doing in the world, he's doing through all of his people. No matter their position. No matter their responsibilities. No matter their status in life. No matter how young, old they are. No matter what role in the society they have. God is doing his work through all of his people. You. Me, all of us, a responsibility to show that in whatever we do, showing the supreme value of Christ. And we do this because it comes with a beautiful promise. We have an inheritance. Peter calls it in 1 Peter, he says that we've been given into it an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Meaning no one can touch it, no one can steal it from us. So we are safe to gladly keep work for and give ourselves to Jesus and his cause as our ultimate master because we know he will ultimately not disappoint those who are his. Let's pray. Father, I do ask for help in this area. We want to honor you for what you have done. We are grateful for the gospel. You are the one who has bought us with your very own blood. Our lives are not our own. We belong to you. And so therefore, we do want to glorify you with our bodies. We want our lives to show your supreme value. Father, I pray that we would hear the admonition, the encouragement. It is an admonition, but it's also an encouragement, God. I pray we would hear it as such, that whatever you're doing in the world, you're doing through all of your people. So we have been given great opportunity and blessing that in whatever role we are in, to make much of the name of Jesus. 
to lift you up as the supreme treasure in this life, knowing that no matter if it comes, no matter what cost it may come to us, the rejection, the skepticism, the rolling of the eyes that might happen across this world, even sometimes severe, serious persecution, we will never lose the reward that is found in Christ Jesus. Help us, God, to see it, to love you, to treasure it, to embrace it, and magnify you with our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.